All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Punchy Hunter podcast. I'm your host, Justin Stafford. Today, I've got my good friend, Everett. Uh, Everett is an avid hunter, and, uh, well, shoot, he's pretty average uh, horse breeder and ranch hand. Um, he's just kind of an all-around guy. Uh, man, excited to have you on. It's been too long. Well, it's been a, uh, I appreciate you having me on, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to catch up with you and, and uh, probably have some pretty passionate conversation. Oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, for everybody listening, we, we shot the shit for a little bit on the phone, uh, and and it was getting heated off record, so I could only imagine <laughs> what, what on record's going to be like. But, uh, you know, I, I got a fresh beer and, and all the time in the world, so uh, let's roll right into it, man. Why don't you just go ahead and tell everybody about yourself a little bit? So my name's Everett Loftus. Uh, I own Loftus Livestock. Uh, we are a diversified livestock production uh, operation. We have uh, quarter horses, thoroughbreds, commercial cattle, uh, and boar goats, as well as a little bit uh, dog breeding goes on. We raise some Idaho shags and some German shorthair pointers. Uh, also have a little flock of chickens just for, for giggles, but, uh, well, and with egg prices, the way they are these days, you're about to, you're about to be like a trap house on the end of your streets on them eggs. If you want to, you know, I've got a lot of, uh, enjoyment out of some of the memes I've seen where they have, uh, <laughs> compared, uh, egg, uh, production to the new, uh, crack. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny and it's, it's true. I mean, I tell you. I was in Fort Collins the other day and I stopped at the ga- or at the grocery store to pick up, I don't know, it was something random, maybe a gallon of milk or something just because I figured while I was there I'd pick it up. And the eggs were $11 a dozen. And I thought, cool. man, in what world? Uh, and I guess we can jump in on one of the topics I'd like to discuss, which is Colorado's uh, egg. Uh, uh, they're banning the cage egg production here in the state. And uh, I tell you, I think that's only going to hurt the consumer. It doesn't affect the massive chicken farms. It's only going to affect the people buying the eggs because all that egg farmer is going to do is push yeah. that price onto the consumer. A- absolutely. Like, like you said uh, off air, they're, they're just going to go in. They're going to make the changes that they have to make to comply with the law and continue to make money and then just trickle those costs whether they've got the money for it or not you know they could probably shell out the money and be just fine but they can so they're gonna just push right down to the consumer um and and that's the way it goes and that's kind of the problem with with uh how everyone is so far removed from farming and ranching that's not how you make a difference um you don't make a difference in the ballot box. You make a difference by going and talking to your producer, your local producer. You go ask for a tour of their operation. They can explain to you how they do it and why they do it a certain way. Um, what always kind of caught me off guard is I never understood when someone would go to their mechanic and they say, hey, I have a problem with my car the mechanic tells them what the problem is and what it's going to cost to fix it. There's, you know, you might be irritated at the price, but you don't tell them how to do their job. 
you don't go to your doctor with a broken arm. You don't tell him how to fix your arm. You, you listen to him and he'll put a cast on and he'll get it fixed up and you don't fight him or argue with him about the Facebook ad or post that you saw about this holistic, uh, bone healing uh, medicine. You just do what he says and you get healed up. But for whatever reason, when you go to the producer, it, no one goes to the producer. And if they do, it's just to fight and argue with how they do it. They don't want to listen about the reason behind they're looking at face value. And that's all they care about when it comes to ag production, in my opinion. Absolutely. And, and, and I could even take it a step further and just that the ag industry is the only industry that you see that in in any aspect like you said nobody tries to go and tell their dentist how to do their job or how to do their chiropractor you know how to do their job or their doctor but you know, i can tell you as a farrier uh, it happens about four or five times a week somebody wants to tell me about some article they read on how barefoot trimming is the most natural and bestest thing in the whole wide world you could do for your horse and so that you know i should really start doing that or or read some article on composite shoes and and the next thing you know they're fucking expert and they're trying to tell you how to do your job and well you only have that happen four or five times a week buddy oh god yeah and that's just because i don't have to see clients every every stop (laughs) (laughs) well and and that's that's my biggest problem because it it surrounds the industry of ag I mean, you look at horse trainers. How many times do their clients go in there and tell them how to train a horse? Or or farriers are, of course, like yourself. I mean, you're a prime example. I don't know a single farrier that isn't told how to do his job almost daily. Uh, It when I say four or five times a week, it's that's daily. That's just if I work four or five days a week. and, And and that's to me that's a problem because. You don't see that anywhere else. You might have the occasional person that thinks they're smarter than their doctor or smarter than their mechanic or smarter than their dentist. But here's the thing. If they were, they'd be taking care of it themselves. They wouldn't be there. Um, Absolutely. Here's my thing. You don't know how to trim your horse. You don't know how to shoe your horse. Let your farrier trim and shoe your horse. He knows what he's doing. He's certified. He, He went to school for this. He knows what he's doing he's not just willy-nilly hacking away at your horse's hoof no darn sure not and and if you don't know how to grow your own food don't tell somebody else how to do it just let them grow your food yeah and and you know i find that ironic because that famous saying don't bite the hand that feeds you yet in today's society that is exactly what's happening they are biting the hand that feeds them you know we are the polluters. It's not everyone driving their uh, gas guzzling sports car to work in smog covered cities. It's the guy in the tractor disc in the ground or the guy running in the feed truck down the alley. Those are the guys that are causing all the pollution, right? Not you ordering your Amazon whatever every other day, getting it delivered to your house. Uh, after how many plane rides and how many truck it got dumped onto. I mean, well, of course not, Everett. That requires taking responsibility. And, and who, who wants to do that? Yeah, We can't have anything like that going on nowadays, no, no, can Of course not. I don't know. That's the kind of stuff that that blows my mind. And, 
and unfortunately it's it's everywhere and uh for us in particular we get it on the ballot a lot and there's a lot of things that wind up on the ballot that propaganda is powerful you can make people believe it man they don't care to hear the facts if if you can be the first one there to plant that seed in their head They'll never that's go. what's going to grow that's yep. that's what's going to grow absolutely if if you try to alter that in any way they're going to claim you a liar and ignore you or just argue with you and there's not going to be any education that goes on there and a prime example of that's the wolf reintroduction here in the state of colorado oh now, God. yeah now predators in colorado i would argue have been an ongoing issue um and i and it, it's predators as simple as raccoons possums and coyotes uh in i think it was 97 or 1998 there was a statewide ban on trapping of fur bears so that meant you couldn't leg hold trap coyotes you couldn't snare raccoons you couldn't con a bear for skunks or any of that and and here's the thing you got these people that think that that's this cruel and brutal way to to go out for these animals but not only is it their proof that it's not a cruel method and, and there are guys that i would argue that that can make it cruel oh but... just like anything else so there's there's good eggs and there's bad eggs that'll that'll paint anything in a bad light well, absolutely, and and unfortunately, there were a couple of those bad eggs back in the day, and, and man, when, when this was going on, I was either just a thought or maybe a year old when all this was going down. Yep. And unfortunately, now there's no management, uh, and of course, the fur prices doesn't help because then you don't got anyone out there calling coyotes or, or shooting coons or anything like that. And they just and, ramp it. Well... And it's not this perfect world because when you're talking about a predatory animal, there's not very many animals that are going to go to eat a coyote or eat a raccoon. Like that's not going to be, and yeah, I'm not going to argue that I'm sure there's the occasional coyote. I saw a video the other day of a coyote on trail camera catching a raccoon, right? Well, part of that, it goes back to the mismanagement of those predators because if a coyote's hungry enough that he's going for another predator, for example, a raccoon, that coyote's awful hungry because I've seen and heard stories of coons killing uh, cow dogs, killing coyotes in, in a defense-type situation. So if you got a coyote eating a coon, he's hungry. There's not much yeah. food for him. Absolutely. When, when they go to killing something, which, you know, for those listening that – that don't understand which for our audience i'm sure everybody does you know coyotes cats don't want to fight no they they want the easiest meal they can get they they yeah. want the easiest thing they could possibly snatch that day they don't want anything that could defend itself or any kind of a fight well and that's the thing so so you got this band now and now you got people mad because the let's say the coyote population is booming, right? Well, there's more coyotes, so now they need more food. Well, there's not enough rabbits or squirrels to, 
to feed all the coyotes. So now they're getting pushed into the suburbs and now they're getting fluffy or spot out of the backyard and eating him because what easier meal than something that's contained in a yard that can't get out? I mean, Absolutely. Uh, you talk about domestic animals, the survival instinct is not there for a domesticated animal as it is a wild animal. A wild animal's genetics go back to the beginning of that species uh, with survival of the fittest. Absolutely, and we have entirely bred that out of domesticated animals for the most part. Oh, absolutely. It's all for, for well, single trait select, which, yeah, that's great for certain things. But you get to a point where you single trait select for that. Now you've got something that's got all these joint problems and dietary allergies. And, you know, it's like all these guys feeding their dogs this $70 a bag dog food because it's got allergies to shellfish and red meat and this and that man i i don't think there's a coyote on the planet would turn his nose up to to any meat or oh, anything <laughs> you don't hear coyotes getting found dead from an allergic reaction yeah absolutely not it just doesn't happen so you have all these issues and that then people are mad about that and then they're mad you got the bird watchers we'll get back on topic of why the banning on trapping is so bad so for your nest raiding predators your your skunks your raccoons your possums they eat eggs like crazy um so i would be the first to debate about our current pheasant and and quail population our wild turkey population yeah, there's still birds around, but it's not like it was back in the day when those animals were getting managed. When they used to be trapping raccoons, I mean, I, I'd hear stories of guys that would catch 100 coons a week. Uh, you think of how, how many eggs 100 coons could eat over the course of a spring, how many oh, nets yeah. they would have raided. And now you're, the only thing managing the coons really are, 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 are cards when they're getting hit on the road. And the occasional hungry coyote. Yeah, exactly. And and <laughs> so you look at that, and now you got the bird watchers mad because there's no birds to watch or, or less birds to watch, I should say, because there's still birds around. But yeah, it, it, there's an order and there's a pendulum that you got to it, – it's hard to stay on that pendulum and manage everything effectively. But the thing of it is you look at – how many times have we had mange outbreak in the state of Colorado over the course of the last 25 years, ever since the ban of trapping? Okay. Well, that's because if we don't manage the population, mother nature will. And let me tell you, she's a heck of a lot more cruel than, uh, we are as human beings. Um, I, I've seen those coyotes that, don't have a single hair on them and they're laying up in in your haystack freezing to death starving to death and that you talk about a slow miserable death that's where i would say that is because you know if you get snared and you're dead within a minute that's a heck of a lot more humane in my opinion than dying over the course of a month of starving to death or freezing to death Absolutely, every time. 
like you said, Mother Nature is always going to try its best to right itself. Um, shoot, I, I think a good example of that, and and I'm honestly just starting to do a lot of research on it, so I'm not the most educated, but, you know, I think you could use chronic wasting disease and, and deer as a good example of something, you know, Mother Nature is going to take care of the population one way or another. Well, you look at chronic wasting disease or blue tongue. I mean, blue tongue's big out east. Uh, yeah, if you don't manage the population, she'll manage it for you. But see, we're, we have this special skill, man. We, we can manage the number rather effectively. We, we get reports of how many deer get run over in X county or Y county. You get reports of okay, this year we had X amount of tags and only this many were filled, so only that many deer were taken out of that herd. We can manage a lot more accurately than she can because when she releases a wave of that, it doesn't discriminate. It's taken the weak, it's taken the old, it's taken the young, it's taken the healthy. It doesn't care. And that's that's something else that CWD is a great example of. It does not discriminate. Does not. It, it just kills. And, and and it goes back to, yeah, in a perfect Disney world, you know, I, I, I have a neighbor. He was a used to be a trapper f- for the state of Colorado. And he, he'd t- tell me that everyone's just living in, in Walt Disney world. And, and it's true, you know. Oh, absolutely. And you look at the propaganda out there for hunters and trappers. There's a lot to teach our kids that are growing up that hunters are bad. You look at Bambi. Oh, Bambi's so terrible. They portray it where this newborn fawn gets his mother killed by these big bad hunters, right? Well, Absolutely. come hunting season, it's not a newborn fawn. It's, it's, it's ready to get weaned. It's, it's time to, to no longer be with its mother. Hunting season is when it is for a reason. Absolutely, and people don't understand that because there's, there's this uh, level of common sense that's no longer common. I uh, I had a I I did a little bit of ROTC in high school, and and my first ROTC teacher, my sergeant major, always said common sense ain't always common, and fucking a if it was true then, and it just gets worse as time goes on. Every day it gets worse, man, and and that's un- unfortunate. I mean, but even you look at. Another one of those cartoon movies, Open Season. Oh, watched yeah. Open Season, and yeah, I grew up. I watched Open Season, and I I thought it was hilarious, I, but I I never picked up on on the propaganda in there. But they're painted as these hunters are so cruel. They go out there and just murder all these animals just to hang them in their house. And and I'm not gonna argue. There are a lot of guys that that are out there trophy hunting. Oh, it, right. it, again, that's. That's one of them spots you could always, and you can and will always just go, you know, there's bad eggs and there's good eggs. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's bad eggs in hunting, just like there's bad eggs in fucking, I don't know, uh, veganism. I don't know. Something that people think are is the latest, greatest thing. I promise there's bad eggs in that, too. You just don't oh, see absolutely. them every day. Absolutely. And that's that's the problem, you know. You're teaching these kids that hunting is this terrible, awful, barbaric thing when it's not. You know, there's families that that rely on on wild game meat to survive every year because oh, they absolutely. can't afford 
going to the grocery store and buying protein. They can't afford to or, to fill their freezer. Or uh, you with, could get into a state like Alaska where it's just not accessible. They have to kill game because they can't go to the grocery store exactly. and buy meat. The grocery store is four hours away. Well, and, and you know. And, and, and that all goes back to, to the world has gotten really easy to live in for us in America. Because, you know, I would argue that I could talk to my grandparents if they were still here. And I, I, could, I could ask them and I guarantee you they'd have a time in their life where they weren't sure where their next meal was going to come from. Oh, Growing up, I never worried about having oh. food. I never worried about uh, not having clothes. I never worried about any of that. And I, I bet you when my grandma was a little girl, she was getting the flower sacks cut into dresses for her. Oh, um, absolutely. So for that plays a, a pretty major role in this. Because it's... what was it a couple years ago? There was like a what? A one or two week period where Walmart wasn't able to get avocados from Mexico. And it was like in November or December. And, and to think that people were up in arms about not having avocados for two weeks when I would argue that 100 years ago, no one probably had avocados. The average American didn't even know what an avocado was. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's amazing how much, and, and I think this will tie in, into your point of, of why trapping is important and why the banning of it was such a big deal and and a lot of the other things we're going to talk about the it's so easy to live these days that there is an astonishing lack of education in the american people and 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 not even just the american people but people worldwide there's just an astonishing lack of education in why ranching is important and beneficial and needs to be protected and taken care of and and hunting as well and you could say the exact same things for hunting and and that's kind of why i got the idea to talk about both on this podcast they tie into they tie into each other so often and face a lot of the same scrutiny and problems and and a lot of guys you know a lot of a lot of guys like to do one like to do the other but they're well there's just an astonishing I'll jump in on that a little bit because I'd also like to talk about as much as they tie together, there's a lot of debate between the two. It's just like I watched, there was a guy ranting and raving about corner crossing in Wyoming about how these guys don't respect his ground and his airspace or whatever. And it, 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 what it boils down to there is money. So we'll get into that probably here in a little bit too. Uh, about the monetary when it comes to hunting and ranching and the conflict it causes there. Oh, absolutely. But, but, but I agree because, in my opinion, they go hand in hand. Uh, generally, what's good for one is generally also good for the other. Um, and that's why it's so amazing that once you, in, once you involve something like money, they just fight like cats and dogs when – you're you're sitting there going, man. If you two would just work together, you could you could not only make money off of each other, but you could just get along. You could get well, along, and make money off of each other if you guys. And we got enough realize. people against. We got enough people against us on either side of that because I, you know, 
I would argue that my two passions in life are hunting and horses. And those two things to me, like they, they are what my life revolves around. Absolutely. To sit there and see that you got guys that are, are essentially on the same team fighting each other as well as fighting the people on opposing teams. That energy is wasted. I mean, yeah, you might not see eye to eye on everything, but man, as a general rule of thumb, we are wanting the same things in this world. We are stewards of the land. Exactly. And, and, why and can't people we forget that. Along? Yeah, well, why can't we just get along and steward the land correctly? Because when you, when you steward it correctly, everybody is going to do okay. Sure, you'll never make everybody happy. You just won't. You never will. It doesn't matter what you're, what you're talking about, what subject. You'll never make everybody happy. But well, if, sure. if you could just steward the land together, everybody everybody could could coexist just fine absolutely and and it's it's frustrating to see uh but i mean you look at it at a lot of different aspects in the industry you got headbutting going on you got people as much as i argue that vegans post a lot of anti-ag propaganda that is false i could argue the same within the beef industry of of the guys posting about grain finished beef is so terrible for you so you got to buy my grass finished beef or oh yeah uh, the grocery store beef is so bad you need to buy direct from farmers and ranchers it, it doesn't make sense you know there's enough to go around and uh that having to fear monger your clientele into buying your product tells me that your product probably isn't worth buying um it's to me, it's a it's a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset, and 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 I I wish I could say that I had thought of this myself. Um, there's a there's a guy whose podcast I really love to listen to, um, Brian Call, the Gritty Podcast, and and he said this, and it really 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 resonated with me. It's a difference between a scarcity, oh, I have to take all that I can get. I have to get as much as I possibly can for me because everything's scarce. There's not enough to go around. Whereas if everybody would start to think of it more of as an abundance, there's an abundance of this, there's an abundance of that. What can we do to improve that abundance and make it even more abundant rather than just, no, fuck you, you shouldn't buy from that guy, you should buy from me, because, you know, there's only so much money in the world to go around, I want it, I want it for me, there's only so many elk to go around, I want tags for me, so to hell with you. Absolutely, and I think that's the problem, because one of the points I'll bring up is, is grazing permits on National Forest. Oh, yeah, absolutely, talk about a hot topic. This one is, is, is tough for me. Because obviously I raise livestock, so I can resin with the with the livestock producers on this. But I am an avid hunter. I I love chasing big bulls and big bucks up in the Rocky Mountains, and uh, so I can I can resin with the outdoorsmen that that get into this debate. But here's here's where I'll I'll argue this. All right, let's remove the grazing permits. Okay, now you got all this growth, right? And all that growth is great. 
you might have a year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years of really good hunting, right? Absolutely. Okay. Then you get a dry year. Well, and all of a sudden, here comes one of those July thunderstorms. Well, now you just caught fire. And yep. now you burned your national forest that you used to have prized elk and deer hunting on, right? Been your favorite unit your whole life. You've gone well, up there every year, and now it's burnt to a crisp. Now it's charred black with a bunch of toothpicks out of it, sticking out of the ground. Do you think it's going to be great elk hunting or deer hunting? Nope. No, I think a lot of the elk and deer in that area probably got killed. Yeah. Because I, I, that happened up there in Granby. Uh, that fire, worst fire in, in Colorado history. And talking to the game wardens up there where they're talking about how they had to drive around for days and euthanize all these these animals that were, if not burned alive, they were burned to the point where there was going to be no rehabilitation of them they would never be the same absolutely and and to me there's this fine line like yeah you know what it's not going to be perfect one way or the other you know you can't just turn the grazy permits crazy you can't just graze it to to nothing you got to manage that but at the same time you can't just let it go and let the hunters hunt the deer and elk and and pretend like there can't be any management of that ground because logging plays a role too i mean when you don't take what needs to be taken out and you do not manage the ground it goes back to mother nature managing it for you and her Mm -hmm. way is a lot more brutal than how we can manage it we can be a lot more efficient and proficient at managing if we can work with each other and differing groups. Yeah, you know what? I understand the guys that don't like logging because they want to protect the forest for the spotted owl or whatever type of rare frog is up there. All right, I understand that to an extent, but you also got to understand you're getting it's, a it's handful forest. of years of good out of it, whereas as soon as one of those fires go through there, you're not going to have the habitat for that spotted owl or for that frog in another 40, 50 years, it's going to take that forest to grow back. Absolutely. I was just about to say the the, the difference is is a, a fire don't discriminate. A logging crew does. A logging crew discriminates in what they can and can't take and what they will or won't take. And, and, and the fire same we said about not. hunters. <laughs> and the absolutely. hunters can, can discriminate. And, and, and even I'll argue that the, the livestock grazers can. Because if you want to take the grass growth out, run some cows in there. You want to take kind of some shrubbery and some brow, browse out, turn some goats in there. Yep. You can manage what species you run and how long you run them and how many you run. And you can manage how much you take. Absolutely. They all... You know, there, of course, there's there's a little bit of crossover between every species. Pretty much every species will eat a little bit of something that something else will too. But for the most part, they thrive on different different plant life. And to manage that properly, you need you need it all. You need livestock and you need wildlife 
to really create the perfect balance. Like I said, you you know, you'll never make everybody happy. Like you know, like you said just a second ago, you can't just you can't just take all the grazing permits away and expect that to be the best course of action. And you can't just kill all the wildlife and think that that's what's best. There has to be balance, and somebody will always be unhappy with the balance. But there they'll is always a feel like it's unfair. There. They'll Absolutely. always, regardless how much you give someone, they'll always think you gave someone else more. Absolutely. It's just the way that our society works now. Everybody wants, you know, everybody wants more. It's that scarcity mindset. Well, and, whole- it, and it is, you know, we live in a money hungry world. Uh, if you're not rich, and you're entitled. not entitled. Well, absolutely. Just so, yeah, not even, especially once you get into I don't know certain things like how many tags are out there and stuff. I mean, well, you look at you look at a state like New Mexico, and, and this this kind of struck a chord with me because I've been applying to some some tags lately, and this really struck a nerve with me. So, how cool! I was reading an article about this guy going to New Mexico and shooting oryx because they have a free range population of of oryx that they look like gimsbuck. Oh, yeah, they're a cool-looking critter, yeah. And and it's a free-range hunt, so I'm I'm not a big fan myself in high-fence hunts. That's a debate for a different day. That, to Uh, me, that's not hunting, but a free-range exotic animal. Wow, how cool would that be? So, let's see. Let's check when I I have to apply. So, I hop on the website, and I check when I have to apply. Well, I'll, I'll be dang. The applications are open, so I go to apply. How much does it cost me to apply for a New Mexico tag? One tag. Oh gosh, I I I couldn't even tell you. I know what the I know what the non-resident license costs, and I I want to say that was like one hundred sixty bucks. Man, yeah. that don't even trickle down. You know, I'm fine. hundred bucks. That's almost understandable with inflation nowadays. I can get that. Nope. To apply for an Oryx tag in New Mexico, it costs you right at $1,700. Oh, man. Now, here, here's where it gets tricky because they do refund you it. But that means I have to essentially have two grand sitting around not doing anything. Like, I have to have two grand to just spend in cash. Well, oh, man. I raise livestock. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have two grand to just... Oh. No, I, I, I don't either. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. Yeah, they refund most of it. Okay, let's say they refund 1500% or $1,500 of the 1700 that you spent, right? So it cost you $200 and it just took some work to get your money back. Well, all they're doing that for is so they're going to stick that in a bank account, accrue all this credit, and now they just made how many thousands of dollars just on – putting that money in a specific bank. Oh. Okay? Yeah. The problem with that is they're the first ones. The game and fish departments are the first ones to say, we don't want hunting to be a rich man's sport. Well, what average household has $2,000, let alone let's say you have a, a house with a dad, a mom, and two kids that they all hunt. So if they all wanted to apply for that tag, they That's almost eight. have to come up with eight grand to, yeah. to, to do that. Absolutely. Me and me and Cody were talking about meeting in Wyoming to do some hunting this fall. And and honestly, we, we got to the point where we said piss on it because you have to front the cost. Well, and that's and, and to me, 
that's the problem with it. It it has turned wildlife has become another form of revenue for the government. Oh well, and the government will make anything and everything a form of revenue as fast a- as it can. Absolutely, because they'll. I I heard this argument too. A guy getting back on the topic of trapping coyotes in the state of Colorado. Guy says, "Well, on my property, I should be able to ha- manage the prop or manage the wildlife however I see fit. When it comes to an animal that is killed with no season and no bag limit, so that means if you were to take them with a firearm, you could shoot as many as you humanly possible, and you would never get punished. Right. But they're saying you can't trap. Well, the argument was, hey, I." I'm going to manage them using traps. The game warden in turn tells this rancher, well, the government owns the, the state of Colorado owns the wildlife. So the <laughs> rancher responds to the, to the game warden and says, Hey, if that's the case, I want you to get every single coyote off this property within the end of the week. If you own them, you need to come get them off of my property. Absolutely. And that, that game warden started backpedaling pretty hard. And it, it is. The, the state wants to own the wildlife until it costs them money to own the wildlife. They don't want to give depredation tags. They don't want to refund ranchers when, when a herd of elk comes off the mountain and absolutely destroys his haystack. They don't want to pay that rancher so he can go get more feed for his livestock they they only want the lives or they only want the wildlife when guys are buying tags and applying for tags and and spending all this money on that wildlife absolutely and and i could when i was working for a ranch in in colorado and and i i won't name names or anything of the sort because uh what i did was very very uh not legal um but we took it into our own hands. Uh, we had elk just absolutely decimating our hay yield, and and fishing game wouldn't do nothing about it. So nope. me and another kid took to horseback with ropes, and and we made sure them them elk thought it was rather unpleasant to be around. Well, and that and that's the problem. Here's my problem with the government. They they see stuff like that as we're terrorizing the livestock or ter- terrorizing the wildlife. And that's cruel and, and whatever. When here's the thing, man, all you have to do is, hey, you want to make the rancher and yourself some money? Give the rancher some depredation tags. And let him sell them. He can sell and then make them an application where the hunter has to fill it out just like a landowner tag. And they come pay you, the state, for the tag now you're making the rancher happy and you're making yourself happy. But instead of doing that, you're, you're just going to pretty much hurt the little guy that just wants you to do your job. And, and just wants a chance to hunt. Absolutely. And, and it's just it's very frustrating. And I, I could get into that with the government interference on a lot of things. It's just like the brand board. Um, I have some choice words about some of the stuff that goes on in the brand office. Uh, 
and and I don't want to dig myself <laughs> a hole here, but <laughs> it's it's rather unpleasant to deal with them sometimes. And to me, that goes back to it being government run. Um, when you're trying to get a hold of someone and it takes them a week to get back to you, it it bullies guys into breaking the law. When when I call the brand inspector, and I want to have a brand inspection done because, hey, this lady's coming out to buy a horse and you don't call me back for three, four, five days. That's that's not the world we live in now. We live in a here and now situation. That's the world we live Absolutely. in. That's the point of having the cell phones. That's the point of having email. That's the point of all of this is so when you when you think of it, you can make it happen. It's just like if I want to call you at 2 o'clock on July 2nd, all I do is put an alarm in my phone, and at 1.58, I'll get a little notification on my phone saying, hey, call Justin. Yep, That's absolutely. months away, and I can make it happen instantly, just yep. like that. And you, you get into that, and I would argue that the government likes taking their money and being paid for their job. They just don't necessarily like doing their job. Always. And that leads to a lot of issues uh, for a lot of different uh, areas. Oh, absolutely. Uh, nobody nobody wants to work anymore. And, and, and you could say that for a lot more than just the government. There's just a lot of people out there that just really don't want to seem to work anymore. Um, well, prime example are the day hands, the modern-day day hands. Uh, oh, yeah. We can get into that topic. Uh, they want to rope and choke yearlings in the sage from sunup to sundown. But heaven forbid they muck a stall. Heaven forbid they build a fence. Heaven forbid they have to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and pull a a breech calf out of a first calf heifer. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. They, there's this glorified version of what day working is and that it's all, it's all the glamorous stuff. Oh, if I go day work for this guy, I'm going to sit horseback the whole day and not, you know, it's going to be easy money and it should be, it is. And it should be. And the should be is the problem. Absolutely. You hope Absolutely. that it is. You, I mean, I, I love the day work just as much as the next guy as a farrier. You know, I miss cowboying every day. And, and I could talk all the live long day about why I don't do it for a living anymore. Oh, um, you know, there are, there are, I, today is a prime example of this. All right. I, I, when I was cow, cowboying for work, you know, there were some days that, man, it was fun sitting there and you look out over the herd of cows and you got a bunch of newborn calves running and bucking and playing. And you, you man, man, that's why we do it right there. Absolutely. But I look out the window today, wind is howling, snow Snow's is blowing. blowing. <laughs> and I'm, all I can sit here and think is, thank God I'm not on heifer watch tonight. Oh. Uh, you know, yeah, that's the nature of the beast when you're in the livestock industry. But, man, when you're making someone else all the money, whew, it's kind of hard to talk yourself into doing that. Oh, isn't it, though? I Shoot, it's I'm self-employed, and I didn't go out and chew any horses today because, well, it's just real hard to talk yourself into going and getting blown away. And, and, and here in Arizona, it's been snowing sideways off and on all day and and same as up there and it's it's hard to psych yourself up for it i don't care who you are 
Well, it's the thing, man. You you can put on a lot of layers, and and here's the thing, man. There's a fine line there too, because you you put on too many layers, and all of a sudden you're sweating, and then it's making once your body cools down from sweating, now you're even colder. Oh, I know. Or if you I, don't put on enough layers, I, man, I, you get cold pretty quick. I learned the hard way uh, coming from the coming from the flatland and going up north i i learned really fast there's there's a big damn difference between sitting in the cold and working in the cold and you do have to dress appropriately absolutely absolutely and uh you know it's just one of those things that unfortunately yeah everyone likes the fun stuff of it but at the end of the day it's a job it's work you're you're gonna have to earn your money and that's the problem with a lot of that modern day stuff is is they want the glory and the money, but they don't want to necessarily earn it. No, nope. I can't tell you trimming trees isn't the most enjoyable job or mending fence or, or what have you spraying weeds. That's always a fun one. Oh yeah. Uh, um, shoot. Uh, I had a job in college that I think was a big stepping stone um, to me going on into my cowboy career. Cause it was one of the first jobs I got where the guy just kind of really turned me loose uh, but a, a, kind of the biggest and most important responsibility I had, because it kept everybody happy, was cutting firewood for his mom. Yep. Cutting firewood was my biggest responsibility, because if his mom had wood to burn, she was happy. And if she was happy, everybody was happy. Absolutely. If her wood pile got empty and she got mad, everybody was fucking mad. Well, yeah, man. And, and that's that's what people forget is, is that's just as important keeping the boss lady warm is just as an important job as pulling calves out of heifers. And, and you know, it's not, you're not going to be training on colts every day. You're not going to be in the saddle every day. There are going to be spells where you're not in a saddle for, for weeks, if not months on end, where you don't see the back of a horse. Absolutely. Or you, you don't look down the ears of a horse anyway. And, that's just part of it. That That is part and parcel to the job. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you got all these TikTok cowboys, and, and everyone's an expert, and you got these guys posting pictures with their breast collar at the ankles of the horse, and, <laughs> you know, the back sense tied to the latigo, and, the, you know, just... Oh, it's you, just... Yeah, it's just all kinds of fucked. But, but you know, that's... That's fitting for what they're trying to do. They're trying to get their buckle bunny lays in, and, and that's all they care about. They don't care about the true glory of what cowboying is. Absolutely and, not. And I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot. There Absolutely. are guys that do it for the glory, and there are guys that do it because it's in their their heart to do it. Absolutely. Um, I, I, there's just no doubt about it. Um and I'll be the first one to tell you, um, shoot, maybe it was just me and you could make an argument that this means I just didn't love riding horses enough, I guess. But, you know, there were, there were spells. I I wanted to do anything but sit on a horse. I had spent so much goddamn time on a horse fighting the ass into cattle, trying to keep them going the right direction or keeping them healthy and, you know, my hand is raw from dropping coils over and over and over, trying to keep things healthy or, or going to the right place that I looked forward 
I I love knowing <laughs> that I got to get up and not sit on a fucking horse that day. Well, and and here's my thing. I I I'd kind of I I'm with you on that because you know, growing up, I oh I I want to be a cowboy. Oh, it's so glorious to be a cowboy. I tell you what, where my passion lies, it ain't riding horses. It ain't training horses. I like breeding horses. I like picking a stud on a mare and saying, man, I think that could make a really cool horse. And, and if you told me I, I could either keep breeding horses or, uh, or ride horses, one or the other, man, I would sell my saddle in a heartbeat if it meant I could keep raising horses. And that's the thing. Everyone's got a different thing. You know, I know guys Absolutely. That, that they might as well sew their, their jeans into their seat on their saddle. Cause that's all they want to do. And, and that's, great you know we're all different we're all individuals we all like different things within the same industry absolutely um, i i know kids that but i got two buddies that that cowboy in southern new mexico right now and and they sure enough don't do a damn thing but run and catch strays and tie strays to trees and and lead them out and they just think it's the fucking cats me out day in and day out they'll do it two or three weeks in a row and then come to town for three or four days, and then they go back and do it all over again. And just, I mean, eat, sleep, and breathe it. And that's fucking awesome. It sounds fun for about four or five days, and then I think I'd shoot myself in the face. Well, man, it, that, that same <laughs> argument. Here's my thing. I can make the same argument for hunting, though, for me. you know, Oh, absolutely. It's... When I was a kid, I would... Every day I'd get off the school bus and I'd grab my shotgun and jump in the farm truck and take the back roads to my, my cornfield and I would sit there and try to shoot a limit of geese or ducks or whatever I was hunting. And, you know, I sit there and I see guys that were taking the entire month of September off to go elk hunting in two or three different states and they were bear hunting and all this, you know, oh man, that would be so cool. Well, you go do that once. Go do it once. It's not for everyone. You know, I could see where guys that live for it, that, that their passion is only hunting. Absolutely. That's great. I'm glad there's guys like that out there. I'm not one of them. I love hunting. I, I, I It's a huge passion of mine. But yeah, I got about a week in me. Yeah. I got a week in me, and then I want to get back because then I, half of the time I'm sitting there worried about my livestock and whoever I had to – talk into taking care of it be it morgan or be it my dad or whoever's taking care of the critters for me at the time then i start thinking about that and kind of think man i sure like to see the woman or man i I could go for cuddling my dog on the couch you know for me it absolutely there's there's a level of enjoyment i get from being out in the woods but there's also a heck of a big level of enjoyment i get back in the driveway and i i'm sitting there looking and there's Morgan and my dogs standing in the doorway, man, that, that, that's just as good for me. Um, Absolutely. I, and, and I think that's why this is such an exciting time for me. Cause I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm that guy at the end of the day. I just don't yet. I think I am. I don't know if I'm that guy that could go spend 10 days on a backpack hunt and then come home for three days and then go do it again and do that three or four times in a row. Um, do I think I'm going to find out? Absolutely. I'm self-employed and I, and I can 
for the first time really go hunt as much as I think I want to. Um, but everybody's got a different cup of tea. They just do. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, and I'm really excited to find out what mine is. Cause you know, I grew up whitetail hunting in Oklahoma. I had five or six days around Thanksgiving, if that, and five or six days around Christmas to hunt. And that's it. And I sat feeders and I sat stands. Oh that's man. What, what a hard life. Hunt. I tell you what, you feed guys, man. Oh, Why dude. don't you just step out in the goddamn feedlot and go shoot one of them steers? It's just as sporting. You know, and you don't realize that as a kid. And I'll always whitetail hunt. It, it's got a special place in my heart because it's what I grew up doing. And my dad's passionate about it. My uncle and my cousin, who are kind of my, you know, at the end of the day, my biggest three hunting buddies because I've hunted with them my whole life. It's what they're passionate about. And hey, different strokes for different folks. But like you said, any any more, I just it's like you said, it's just as sporting as, uh, or not even necessarily shooting a steer in a feedlot. It's like going and roping in a feedlot. To me, that you know, after being a guy that roped outside for six there's no years, art to it. There's, there's no art to it. No, and, and here's my thing. I know guys. I know there's probably someone on there listening saying, "Man, that ever guy's an idiot. He doesn't know." And yada yada yada. Man, I've hunted feeders. To me, doesn't get me going. I I went down to Texas on a buddy's ranch. We sat in this bunkhouse deal. Feeder oh, yeah. went off. Here comes a buck, and I didn't shoot him. I to me, I couldn't talk myself into it. From hunting Eastern Plains mule deer, spot and stock with a bow my entire life, to sit there at 120 yards with a 243, looking at this whitetail buck munching on some corn because the dinner bell just went off man it wasn't my thing and here's my thing i get it you guys take a lot of time and energy figuring out where to put your feeders and and you spend a lot of money on the feed and i get that you know what props for you guys i'm glad you guys enjoy doing that not my thing i do not enjoy it and it's just like you said different strokes for different folks yeah uh I would argue that you come on a mule deer hunt with me. We'll go spot and stock a mule deer on the eastern plains of Colorado. And you will think hunting over a feeder is boring as hell, too. Um, I, uh, this, this fall was the first time that I really got to spot and stock hunt. And I did some over-the-counter uh, mule deer hunting here in Arizona. And I didn't even get one. And like I said, I'll always probably do a little bit of whitetail hunting when I go home to see the family around Thanksgiving or around Christmas. Because it, it is what I grew up doing, and I have a special place in my heart for it, for that. But to just crave it like I have in the past when it was the only hunting I've ever done, absolutely not. It does not get me fired up. I look forward to it for the nostalgia, not because it's what gets me fired up. I like I said, I didn't even get a mule deer spot stock hunting this year. I had one chance on a really good buck, um, like a 140 to 150 class deer. So to a lot of guys, nothing to write home about. But I'm out there for the first time running around with a bow in my hand, and I get within 100 yards of him. Man, I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof, and I <laughs> ate, yeah. slept, and breathed that deer for the next couple of days. And well, just unfortunately, never got another chance. But well, and here's my me. thing: I, I, I can appreciate whitetail. I really do. You know, 
you look at a deer, you look at an animal that's really thrived everywhere, you know, from the coos whitetail or cows or however everyone wants to pronounce that down there in the <laughs> desert. We uh, say coos. I know it's supposed to be cows, but that's I, I think coos so. sounds better myself, but it's hey, way, I'm it's, gonna... it rolls off the tongue much better. I, I know what a guy's talking about when he calls one a cow's deer. I might uh, yeah. I might uh, question who he is as a person, but I know what he's talking <laughs> about anyway. Uh but you look at a deer that's really thrived and, and really made a, an incredible comeback. That, that's that's a, a whitetail. But here's my argument there. Out of out of the 48 states, the lower 48, how many of them can you whitetail hunt in? Oh, shoot. Just about all of them. Almost all of them, right? I think there's, what, 12 or 13 states that you can mule deer hunt in that have mule deer a good population to hunt right 13 states and they're all west of say that texas oklahoma kansas nebraska the dakotas they're all west of that yeah west of the center of kansas west of the center of south and north dakota And, and and here's my thing here's my thing about the mule deer from from years of i've been hunting deer in the state of Colorado for over a decade I know I don't know it all but here's what I do know I've shot one whitetail with my bow in the state of Colorado he was a deer I got a trail cam picture of in June that year and I instantly wanted to kill him he had a drop time who doesn't want to shoot a drop time deer he's a 160 class 8 point whitetail with a drop time. I Who wouldn't want that, that deer? I remember okay. post that buck. That was a sweet buck. So, okay. For the first time in my life, I see a whitetail I truly want to chase. When I tell you, we patterned that deer. We knew what he did. I went out, hung a tree stand. There was a lone tree out in this patch of weeds that he kept walking by every night, but he'd hang up in that patch of weeds on his way to an alfalfa field. He'd never come to that alfalfa field in daylight because I tried to sit in a blind Yeah, I was going to shoot him out of the alfalfa field, out of the blind, right? Well, he'd never do that. So one day we decided, okay, we're going to hang a tree stand. We don't tree stand hunt. We are spot and stock kind of guys, hunt out of a blind on occasion. We're not tree stand hunters. But, okay, what the heck, we'll try it. I went out at 10 o'clock in the morning, hung that tree stand, cleared a couple of lanes, whatever. I come home, get all my school stuff, drive to Fort Collins, sit through a couple of college lectures, come back, throw on my camo, grab my bow, go out there, get in the tree probably about mm, 340, 345. By 430, I had an arrow in that deer. Oh, man. First year, that was like, 10 years of bow hunting deer in the state and it was the first deer I ever shot that I had trail cam pictures of and I have some trail cam pictures of deer out east that are massive bucks and I've I've got a couple of guys a couple of buddies of mine they've shot some big deer that I had on trail camera but I personally have never shot one of those big muleys that I've got on trail camera out east ever I I'm I've missed one or two, but I've never harvested a deer I had a trail cam picture of till that whitetail. 
That is what drives me crazy about mule deer is they cover ground. They are not patternable. And and guys are going to jump on and say, well, yeah, certain deer are. Well, yeah, absolutely. There might be in the winter. Every rule. There's there's always an exception to every rule. But I can tell you right now that four by four that I got on, uh, he wasn't patternable because I sat that same little drainage for the next three or four days and never saw him again. Well, and that's what people don't understand, you know. Out there, one of my favorite ways to bow hunt muleys is sitting on the creek bottom in a natural blind and just sitting there come November 20th, give or take. Oh, yeah. Because those deer out there, when they're cruising looking for does, they'll go miles, man. I'm I'm not saying like, hey, they're going property to property. I'm saying they are on a mission just walking down those creeks that, that cover that entire country out there. Yep. They get in a creek and they just walk down it looking for does. And when you look at the data from mule deer during the rut, the bucks that are having those radio collars, and you see how much country they cover versus like those whitetail that have radio collars that are living in 20-acre sections oh, yeah. uh, their entire life. Yeah, I, w- I would argue, yeah, it's a heck of a lot harder to kill a specific mule deer that you're after than a specific whitetail. Um, just my two cents on it uh you can still kill really nice whitetail and really nice muleys that just happen to be the one that came by you but to sit there and say hey this is my target buck i'm going to go get him it's a lot more uh realistic to say that about a whitetail buck than a a mule deer buck all day every day and and if any whitetail guys listening to this want to get up in arms about it, like I said, I grew up a whitetail guy. I grew up sitting stands and blinds and feeders and whitetail hunting and looking at 250 trail cam pictures, you know, looking for that one deer that I wanted to chase that fall. And I've gone and I've picked a deer and I've shot the deer that I picked and all. I've, I've done the whitetail deal. And I'm here to tell you after two mule deer hunts, two four five day mule deer hunts um a mule deer will kick your ass there's just <laughs> no way to splice it whereas a white tail you go ah shoot didn't seem today but that's okay he you know he does this six out of seven days of the week i just happen to be here on the one day i'll come sit tomorrow bet i see him well and that's that's my argument you know there's a little stretch of river bottom i used to duck hunt as a kid and we'd hang trail cameras, and, and year after year, you'd see the same deer. He'd have, like, a specific characteristic or a specific mark on his body where you could tell it's the same deer, right? Oh, absolutely. Of the years I've hunted out east, out out east on the plains of Colorado chasing mule deer, I have a lot of pictures of a lot of different big muley bucks. I would say maybe one or two I have – back-to-back years years on but not not the i i mean i have a white tail down here by the house that i had trail cam pictures of from 2013 2014 15 16 17 18 and 19 until he was hit by a car consistent consistent yeah 
I have never but maybe one or two pictures even of the same deer, and it would be arguable that they might not be the same deer. They could just be related genetically-wise uh, of the mule deer out east. Yeah. And and that's just because they, they don't have a pattern. They don't have a home range. They do what they want to do, and that's where I have this passion for mule deer. Um, they are a treasure in my eyes. And I'm not saying that whitetail aren't, I like a big whitetail, a big drop tine whitetail or a cool whitetail just as much as the next guy. But if you put a, a 180 class mule deer next to a 150 class whitetail, man, that mule is getting hammered. Uh, whitetail oh, is not going to do it for me. I, I think you could, you could put a, a 180 inch mule deer next to a 180 inch whitetail and i'm probably i'm not probably after these two mule deer hunts i'm i'll take that mule deer every time <laughs> every time man and and it's amazing how hooked you get how fast you get like i said i mean i'm i'm i didn't even get one and i'm i'm so hooked it's not even funny um uh shoot i i've got a 10-day mule deer hunt planned in montana with cody this year and um really looking forward to arizona's over the counter seasons this fall um because i mean i'm just i'm gonna chase mule deer so hard uh i'll probably throw every fucking mule deer in the state of arizona into utah (laughs) well and uh, honestly it's just fun it's fun chasing them i like the challenge of it it is a challenge. That is the perfect word for it. It is a challenge. Um, even, you know, that, that buck that I got on, he was rutting. He was up a doe's ass the whole time. Just no doubt about it. he was rutting. And and so I, you know, I, I thought I had it made. I, you know, I kind of got into that whitetail mindset. Oh, I found this doe that's hot and that he wants to be on and that doe probably lives in this drainage this little basin that i was in and i was like this is great you know today didn't work out no biggie no big deal at all i backed out he never knew i was there i'll just come back i'll come back and it'll be no problem this doe's gonna be here and as long as she's hot he's gonna be there went back never saw him again i mean it's just a challenge unlike whitetail um and I'm not saying that it's easy to kill a big whitetail. I'm, oh, I'm no, not. no. I'll be the first one to tell you. I've never killed. I think the biggest whitetail I ever killed was like a 140. I've never killed nothing special as far as whitetail goes. Um, you know, it's definitely a challenge to take big whitetail as well, but it's just not. It's just not mule deer. It's just not. No, it, they just hold a different candle, and I just I appreciate that. I mean, I see oh. a guy that kills a big muley. I, I see a kid that shoots a a little mule deer or a doe muley, and I have more respect for him than those guys that go and shoot a a one fifty class whitetail over a corn feeder or whatever on their two hundred acre deer lease. You know, oh. to me, that's oh, not that doesn't impress me. You know, I'm like Shania Twain. That doesn't impress me much. I'm sorry, boy. <laughs> it's not. Not, not impressive. Everyone's killed, you know, a mature whitetail, it seems. But you start looking at stuff like these western big game animals, not everyone's killed a big one. Or if they have, they've 
paid a fair bit of money to do so. Or in and time and not just not just money, time. They put in a lot of time. Um to get them big muleys or them big elk or, or a big coos deer. Um, Absolutely. Uh, sheep, God almighty, you want to talk about something it seems like guys put their whole damn life into, you know. I mean, when a guy draws a sheep tag, they, they fucking live on the mountain, you know, and a lot of the time they still don't kill one. Um, yep. And, and like you said, you just it, – it's – as much as I don't want to sit here and beat a dead horse by bashing on whitetail per se, but you just don't get that with whitetail. Statistically speaking, with whitetail, there's so much there's so much more whitetail out there. So many more. Um, statistically speaking, you spend enough time out there, you're gonna get a nice mature whitetail. It's just gonna happen at some point. Yeah, and that is not that is not the case with elk and mule deer and sheep and coos deer and and mountain goats. Just because you go sit out there for a lot of days doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it done and get it done on something mature. Exactly. Um, and those guys that do it consistently, like one of my favorite hunters to to watch and and listen to. Is- and he's kind of a big reason why I, I really want to try backpack hunting you know it just it sounds like a lot of fun and I'm real ADD and I like to I like to be mobile and and all that good stuff um but the dude's 49 years old he's been mule deer hunting since he was 12 and and he's been backpack hunting mule deer since he was 12 and he'll be the first one to tell you it's it was about 10 10 to 15 years ago that he really started to every single year consistent consistently take a mature and he didn't you know we're not talking we're not talking 200 inch we're just talking four years plus yeah mule deer um that's a lot that that's literally years you know it took him 20 years to get to the point where he was consistently killing mature mule deer and you just don't hear that with whitetail you just it just you just don't well i mean you see these guys that can pass these these deer on their 50 to 100 acre farm and not be concerned that the neighbor is going to shoot him or 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 have a slight fear of that man when it comes to mule deer man i'm telling you i've seen them in in a single day cover three four five miles and never see him again after you see him the one day you never see him again and that's you talk about an animal that you cannot look a gift horse in the mouth i would i would point a mule deer out pretty quick um they they're not going to stick around they're not going to be a resident deer that hangs out you're not going to have all of his sheds picked up or if you do you probably paid some kid that just happened to find one set one year and pay a guy for the other set he found three drainages over the year before whatever you know having set of mule deer antlers is far less common of the same deer like year after year year. year, yep then the guys that are these whitetail guys where they're sitting there bragging about having four uh, years of sheds from the same deer and i know that deer they, they just had that hunt come out with that buck they called Sleepy up there in, in Canada that the guy has 
two or three sets of sheds off that muley buck. And, yep. and I would be hard. I would argue statistically, there are way more big whitetails that have sets of sheds next to that mount than than mule deer. Oh, Just because oh, it's all day, you talk, every day. You talk about if you watch that video, it's on YouTube. It's called the Sleepy Buck Hunt or or whatever. Uh, and that guy's known for killing giant deer. I mean, I don't think that. That guy shot a couple deer that were 270 inches or something. I think, God dang. I think this buck, he shot this sleepy buck. He's like 250-some-odd inches. Yeah. But my, my argument there is uh, that's a fluke. That's, that's the right area, the right conditions. And even in that video, he talks about how many miles he covers looking for that deer's sheds. Oh gosh, the amount of miles that dude's hiked is probably insane. Where a lot of these guys are picking up these sets of whitetail sheds in a two on to their five farm already. If not maybe their yeah. their neighbor's farm, you know. Um it's just one of those things. I don't know. A guy's gotta have appreciation for it. And and again, it's one of those things if you haven't done it, don't speak on it because you you talk about an animal that'll make you eat your words. It's a mule deer. I've thought I've had some mule deer dead to rights several times, and I went home with a long, quiet drive with an empty bed in the truck. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, I, I thought I had this 4 by 4 dead to rights because I just got in that whitetail frame of mind of, oh, he's on this doe, and that doe's not going to go very far. You know, this doe's going to have a small home range, and I found it, and I found her in heat and just lulled myself into that. And, yeah, I I, uh, I had a long two-fucking two-hour and 15-minute drive home uh, from where I was. That was uh, – had, had, uh, had some positives, you know, getting on a buck that nice my first go-around was something to be a little proud of, but – I was empty. I didn't have a fucking lick of meat to take home, so. Yeah. Uh, I'll do that for a guy. Yeah. Um, so, shoot, I, I know we're we're uh, pretty heavy into the hunting side of things, but uh, something I, I really, really wanted to get your opinion on just because you, you breed horses every single year. Um, like you just said, it's it's your passion. Um, and it's something that I, I think, you know, probably not a lot of people either realize is going on or they're not very educated about, um, and shoot, honestly, even if it's just your opinion, how damn dumb it is. Cause I know how dumb I think it is. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, the, uh, the panel testing, the, uh, quarter horse association is implementing for, registration or or trying to i guess i i haven't seen anything that said they've passed it yet but i know they're trying um so i i'll speak this first any member can make any proposal and it has to be put on the ballot or on the agenda for aqha so there's a lot of hysteria about this topic my hysteria comes from there's someone that stupid to even come up with that idea within <laughs> the industry. Yeah. That infuriates me because that is such a ridiculous idea. 
and you talk about something that would hurt the quarter horse breed oh, tremendously. It would cut the registry in half. I mean, at least, and, right? And there's a Jeez. lot of, of world champion horses that people have spent quite literal millions of dollars on promoting and pushing and training and uh, advertising that would not be bred to because there would be the fear of having a carrier. Right. And so I just want to get that out there. It's not going to pass. If it passes, I will start raising Appaloosa horses. I'll I'll (laughs) mark my word. Um, But uh, no, it's, it's simply put, it's some stupid idea that some backyard breeder probably has a six panel clean triple bred Hancock jug headed stud horse that she's mad that no one wants to breed to him. Uh, even though he's six panel clean, uh, she wants uh, to cut the competition down. Because uh, right now you can breed to. I don't know how many thousands of studs you have to choose from that are standing oh, to the public, yeah. but you have a lot of options. And to me, it's if it does pass, there's going to be so much blowback that it'll be overturned within six months. I'd almost guarantee it. Uh, you talk about people that would be pulling their horses out and registering them as solid paints or getting them to start yeah. standing for Appaloosas or, or, or something along those lines, you start doing that. It's going to make everyone decide, yeah, that's a bad idea. And don't get me wrong. A guy's got to be careful when he's breeding horses. When you know of these genetic diseases, you need to be careful and you need to ensure that regardless if it's a 25% chance of having an effective fold breeding a carrier to a carrier, don't do that. That's, that's careless that's that's reckless. That's Absolutely. a bad look for the industry. Absolutely, and, and and I would argue, and and shoot, it's you know that shows you how much I know about the AQHA, and and it's kind of a reason why I wanted to get your opinion on it. Um, I didn't realize that anybody could put something on ballot or agenda. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I could I could make a a proposal that only the roan horses should be allowed to be registered and it would have to make its way on the ballot. Oh um, man. That's that's something else. And, um, and it's just silly stuff like that. Um yeah. and so that's that's really good to know. Um that's great to know, you know, it's it's, it's nice to know that it's probably like you said, probably just somebody out there trying to cut competition and and whatnot and the likelihood of it passing is slim to none um but to your point of you know don't be a reckless breeder if you know you know if you know this horse is you know positive for two of your big five or three of your big five and and the mare is too yeah that's that's reckless don't do that i would argue that you know that person isn't is obviously not thinking about that because one of the best ways to prevent things like that is genetic diversity. So if you bring in and you, you implement some rule that cuts your gene pool in half, or if not more than half, then. Well, especially since we're really just dig yourself. 
So you you got to think about this. We are a young breed. We're we're an eighty year breed. We're we're not. We don't have a lot, and we're a closed registry except for thoroughbreds. Like it's not like we can breed to Rocky Mountain horses or solid Appaloosas and have a registered foal. We are a closed breed aside from thoroughbreds. So if you're going to look at like the cutting industry, you know, you look at all those horses, most of them are line bred down in their genetics three, four, five, six times over. Oh, and line breeding ain't nothing but a fancy word for inbreeding. I well, you know, I'll, I'll argue this. You know, it's it's line breeding when it works. It's inbreeding when it doesn't. Absolutely, and, that's and, that's all there is to it. They call it line breeding when it works, and it's inbreeding when it doesn't. But part of that, I'll, I'm going to jump in and and bitch about the industry a little bit too. Is you look at back in the day, one of the most world famous quarter horses is Doc Barr. Well, Doc Barr's sire and his dam were both world champion racehorses, and yep. that sucker couldn't catch a cold. I mean, <laughs> you talk about a disappointment for them. And what he did for the industry, as far as the cutting industry, cow horse industry goes, he revolutionized it. You talk about taking a horse that genetically improved your product tenfold, I'm going to say Doc Barr. And here's where my problem is with where the industry is now. If you had a reject racehorse show up in a cutting horse barn today, they'd tell you to haul him the hell out. They oh. don't care unless it's dual ray, pepto boonsmal, highbrow cat, or hottish. If it's not one of those horses, they don't want it because now that's the popular thing. Those are what's winning. Well, why are they winning? It's because those are the only ones allowed to play the game anymore. These big-time trainers, if it's not this phenomenally bred horse, they don't have time or energy or the desire to try anything that's not bred that way. And, yep. and it's going to hurt the industry very badly if, if that doesn't change because oh, you're going to get to the point where everything's so inbred, you're breeding – a metallic cat to a highbrow cat. Well, metallic cats buy highbrow cat. So yeah. now you, you are line breeding that close again, just like we're back in 1960. It it amazes me how many people don't know that metallic cat come out of highbrow cat. Well, uh, and it's just little things, man. And and you look <laughs> at you look at that. You honestly, you go through and you look at the data. You look at these horses that they're pushing. They all have dual ray. Highbrow cat, Pepto Boone. Would he be tough? Yeah. Would he be tough as a good outcross for a lot of them? Um, uh, I, I uh, would. And... There for a minute, that hashtag stud was getting kind of popular. Um, well, he, but he still is. But, but here's the thing: hashtags is by Metallic Cat, I so was, he's a grandson of Highbrow Cat out of a dual ray mare. I was just about to say though, if I'm not mistaken, he's Metallic or Highbrow Cat bred. Yeah. So, and I mean, even look at like that Zach 34, I really like him. He's, he's Woody B. Tough out of a hybrid, highbrow cat mare. So you take him to like a dual rayish where it's dual ray and hottish bread. Right. There you go. That's a good outcross. I, I would say that's a good outcross because people forget hereditary or, uh, what, what is the word? Um, 
when you cross something. Heterosis. Heterosis is phenomenal. You look at a herd of commercial cows, and I guarantee you the black baldies will almost always look better in a herd of commercial black cows than the oh, solid blacks. Absolutely. There's nothing better than some genetic diversity. And, and that's the thing is that heterosis, you're taking the best of both worlds. And when you're in a I closed <laughs> registry, like we are with the quarter horses, if you're not looking at that and, and you're only looking at the generations on that horse's pedigree, that's a mistake. Like if, if you're only looking at his, his certificate, what does it go back? Three generations back. If you're only looking at that, to compare who you're breeding to, you're, you're making a mistake because you might as well get as much outcross as you can on each pole if you want to produce a truly superior animal out of every cross that is a more statistically, on average, more likely to produce an athletic or or better horse, I would say, then, yeah, if you breed a metallic cat daughter to a highbrow cat stud, yeah, that line breeding might pan out really good, and you might get the next world champion. Or you might get an inbred puke that doesn't know how to cut a cow. Absolutely. Uh, um, it's just, you can, I, I think line breeding has its has its place i do because line breeding in the proper way works it works that's why it's called line breeding and not inbreeding um because it does work but i can i can tell you about a horse that i rode he was a cremella horse named thomas and he was line bred skipper w seven times and you want to talk about the dumbest fucking critter i've ever rode Everett, holy shit! <laughs> this horse was unathletic, uncoordinated. I'm not even going to use the word athletic because it just wouldn't be fair to the rest of the the critters that you consider athletic. He was so fucking uncoordinated. He couldn't stay on all four feet. He fell down on me about once a day. He was then a box of rocks, and and I do mean dumber than a box of rocks. You couldn't you couldn't get along with him. Because he just couldn't ever make up his mind to how he wanted to be rode and how he wanted to get along. He was so feed driven. That was about the most consistent way to get along with him. And you, you contemplated putting a carrot on his fucking forehead. And it, it just, he had bad feet. He wasn't very confirmational. He looked good confirmationally, but he just, in my opinion, he wasn't confirmationally sound. And God Almighty, he was just just a, a puke in everything. But, but he had a big hip, didn't he? He did have a big hip. Yeah, Skipper W. That's what they were bred for, buddy. Yep. You want a big old gnarly fat ass on a horse? Yeah, he Skipper was W. Got you covered. He was thirteen hands tall and had the fucking ass end of a true blue Hancock sixteen. <laughs> fucking, I mean, it was so goddamn weird looking, and. 
this little baby head on him. God, he was an ugly fucking horse, and he was dumber and shit too. God Almighty! And and I took him to the triangle sale because he was Carmelo, and and the guy I was working for really thought he would do well. And uh, we were the lowest selling horse of of the weekend. So well, yeah, that's um, what you need to know. You know? Yeah, you can. That's a great example of line breeding has its place and it has its its pros but you can take it way too far and get into cons. it's even like i you know hancock is a fun horse to talk about hancock's fun because you got yeah you got these guys that love them or hate them and here's here's where i'm at a little bit of that hancock blood is a good thing i'm not saying i want one of those double or triple bred Hancocks. <laughs> but you get me a mare or, or a good riding gelding that's got Hancock there at the bottom or bottom back end of his pedigree and like some good performance play gun or or, oh, yeah. or any of that on there. That's a horse, man. That's a horse that'll that'll work for you. And it goes back to the heterosis. Yeah, when you double, triple, quadruple breed a horse that's known to be hard-headed and tough, he's going to be tough to deal with. He's going to be tough to get along with for a lot Absolutely. of guys. And yep. some guys love that. I personally don't. I, I don't want to have a fight every day I go to ride. Absolutely not. I, I did for a while, and it it came and went just, you know, it went just as fast as it came. That's for damn sure. Well, and that's the thing, like, it's just, it's, I, I don't know, I, I feel like the industry is going to shoot itself in the foot here pretty quick if we don't start looking at, you know, I was thinking it'd be really cool if we could do a, a cutting competition where you could get enough sponsors to get a really big pot going and and say that every horse in this to compete cannot have you know, dual ray, Pepto Boonsmo, Woody B. Tough, Highbrow Cat, any of that. They can't have those horses on their papers. It's got to be a different bloodline. If you could get that, and then where you're getting these trainers that want a piece of that pie, where they're starting to accept a couple of horses that aren't necessarily bred by world renowned cutting horses or cow horses, and, and really get to see what else is out there. As far as yeah, genetic diversity, that's what the industry needs. That's what's going to help the industry grow. Absolutely. And these, these big-time trainers really need to, to take a look at because because I'm not going to argue. I mean, I look at every horse I'm breeding to this year, every stud horse. He's dual ray, highbrow cat, Pepto Boone's mole, uh, shining spark. You know, he's something like that. So I, well, I, I'm just as guilty as the next guy because I know be, that's what sells and that's what I was, makes I money. Just about to say, to be fair, these animals are not free, and and having these broodmares is not free, and you 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 gotta cater to what sells if you want to make money. You just but, do. Um, so but I, that, I'm not gonna sit here and say I'm guilt free and all this, but I'm saying it if these trainers would start looking at other horses and giving these horses a chance. Because you don't know what the next Doc Bar is going to be. And it and and 
you know, as far as we know, he got turned away from one of these trainers because he didn't have the pedigree that that made him look like a he was going to be oh, a for, champ. For for all we know, the next Doc Bars and the bag of dog food sitting in my living room right now. Exactly, and 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 to me, that's not fair. I I I feel like give him a chance. Yeah, if you take him for thirty days and he just is not going to make it. Say, okay, he's not going to make it. Go make him a rope horse and sell him and move on with your day. Absolutely. When they don't even get the chance to get attempt to cut or attempt to prove their worth, that's, that's, I don't know. It, it could sure enough be hiding a true treasure for the industry. Absolutely. I, uh, I'll tell you a good example. I like to, I like to use is something that would really blow your mind. One of the cowiest horses I've ever rode in my life was a Corona cartel horse. Well, it's funny you say that because one of the cowiest horses I ever rode was a visionarian. Yeah, you bet. Um, and, and to me, I, I was really disappointed when I lost that marriage. She ruptured an artery and died. But oh dang it! Uh, I really thought, man, if I had a chance to breed and get a couple foals out of her, really get, I I thought, man, if I could get one downsized a little bit, because she was big, she was every bit of fifteen three, uh, if not sixteen. Um, if you could downsize her a little bit, but get that bloodline in there, man. Whew. Oh, that uh. That Corona Cartel horse that I rode, I always told people if I could have got him, the way he struck me, he struck me as a as a horse that a 20-year-old kid just turned and burned steers all day long on. It just, I mean, absolutely blew him up. Um, but you want to talk about one of the cowiest, coolest head horses i've ever sat on he was too much for me i was fresh off cowboying for six years and i'm here to tell you i was a wolfy roper i couldn't keep up with him i couldn't rope off of him because i couldn't rope fast enough yep rope off of him and if you could have got that horse if you could have known what he would be before you turned him into a gelding or before some college kid probably just turned it 10 steers a day, six days a week on him without scoring. Holy moly. I mean, what would you have had? Well, and, and that's the thing you look at, you read some of that on, on the, uh, you know, quarter horse history and pictures or whatever on Facebook. And they're talking about how so many of these great horses were almost gelded. I mean, you look at one of my favorite is Bill the Cutter. I mean, they didn't think he was worth. He he was barely a teasing stud, man. That's all they <laughs> saw his worth as. And look what he did. I mean, that you talk about a, a great horse, Bill the Cutter, or Cutter Bill. Uh, Bill the Cutter's his son. Cutter Bill uh, was a teasing stud for most of his life until they gave him a chance to cut, and then they realized, holy cow, this horse can actually cut. Uh, and just little stuff like that, man. There were a lot of great horses that were almost gelded that helped this industry grow, and and that's where I'm not going to be the first one to argue. You know, I see all this. A uh, good stud would make a great gelding. Well, yeah, but 
sometimes an average stud produces amazing colts. 